Hello, and welcome to the episode on digital health ethics. By the end of this module, everybody listening and participants of this conversation should be able to understand the need for ethical guidelines when using digital health, things like telehealth and mobile apps with patients. This conversation is also designed to help providers understand the 10 key themes across all disciplines that would benefit everybody regardless of discipline. And finally, this conversation was designed to use ethical guidelines in digital health to help the participant decide when digital health is an appropriate choice over in-person care. Today, we are helping you understand how ethical practice standards relate to virtual patient visits, telehealth, mobile apps, and other forms of digital health. I am Michael Drain. I'm an instructor with the Defense Health Agency's Connected Health branch. I'm also a licensed mental health counselor, and I would like to introduce our guest today, Army Captain Fawn Walter a licensed psychologist with the Madigan Army Medical Center at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. Hello and welcome, Captain Walter. Hi, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so glad you're with us. I, uh, you have a wealth of information to provide to this topic, and you have studied the ethics guidelines for many of the health disciplines uh, that, are, that we're going to be talking about, and you'll be able to help us learn you know, the left and the right of these ethical limitations. And we're hoping to share some practical examples after listening to this episode. So you folks out there will be able to earn one continuing education credit by visiting DHA's continuing education program office link in the show notes below. However, before we jump in, I do need to read a disclosure statement. The presenters in this podcast have no financial or non-financial relationships to disclose relating to the content of this activity, or presenters must disclose the type of affiliation, financial interest, such as employees, speakers, consultants, principal investigators, grants recipients, with the company names included. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense nor the U.S. government. This continuing education activity is managed and accredited by the Defense Health Agency J7 Continuing Education Program Office, and all accrediting organizations do not support or endorse any product or service mentioned in this activity. DHA, J7, CPO staff, as well as activity planners and reviewers also have no relevant financial or non-financial interest to disclose. Commercial support was not received for this activity. Whew. All right, Captain Walter, now that we've gotten through that very wordy, lengthy uh, disclosure out of the way, let's start to get into the actual meat of this podcast. What, and I want to start off with a question that I think will set us off on the right foot here. And so what do our military health system providers who are out there listening to this, what do they need to know about digital health ethics? Yeah, that was quite a mouthful there. Um, so the most important thing that our military health service providers need to know is that there's not a separate code of ethics when using health technology like mobile apps and virtual video visits. So my colleague, another Army captain, uh, his name's Brett Crittenden, he and I did a thorough review of ethics practice standards across about 15 different disciplines. Wow. And in doing that, we, I know, it was quite quite an undertaking. But so helpful for people listening, so I'm so glad. 
Absolutely. And so um, in doing that, what we found is that providers need to rely on our traditional ethical practice standards when using technology to provide medical care for their respective fields. Um, So throughout this podcast, I can explain the key points that we learned um, and we can together show how that relates back to patient care. So it sounds like your research and the review that you've done and the things that we're talking about are based on the ethical standards that already exist. So the people who are listening to this, whatever discipline they're in, what we're going to talk about is based on ethical standards that they already should know about. And that's a good starting point. And then from there, we're going to talk about the 10 key themes across ethics that everybody can benefit from. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And I think that's the good news, right? So our listeners already understand ethical standards that we're going to be talking about. Um, We're just going to kind of help clear up how they can apply that information as we move into using technology to practice patient care. I think we've also made a little cheat sheet that can be downloaded and you're probably going to include in the show notes. Um, That's at health.mil slash connected health education. And that breaks down those 10 key points like you just talked about. Awesome. It sounds like that will really help people who are listening to this to get that CE quiz later when they go to the CEPO website and get their credit. Okay, so with all that said, why don't we jump in and talk about practice standards? Okay, but before we get too far, I want to take a minute to define a couple terms that we're going to use throughout the next hour. Sure. Uh, So first is telehealth, and that's one we're going to be using a lot today. So by this, what we mean is using technology to deliver healthcare to remote locations, whether that's in the same town or across to the other side of the state. But for today's purposes, telehealth refers to using telecommunication technology to provide care for patients. So like video conferencing for a medical appointment. And the second term I want to clarify is digital health. Digital health refers to using wireless or mobile technologies to achieve certain health objectives. So this is more of like an umbrella term for all forms of technology and patient care, like wearing um, the wearable devices and mobile applications that we refer to our patients when we're delivering care to them. Okay, so we're clearing up terms here on telecommunication and mobile technology. So that's really important because we're going to be using those terms quite a bit as we go forward. Why don't we jump into the first ethical standard here, and it might even be the most important one, uh, standard of care. I would completely agree with you that this is essentially the most important. So really, the the goal of standard of care is to ensure that you are still meeting the standard of care that is dictated by your profession, whatever that may be. Um, and so I like to think of this as really like a go, no go. So if by delivering your care through technology, you can no longer meet that standard of care, um, then it's a no-go. You can't use telehealth. You have to do face-to-face care. And we should really think of technology as a way to enhance um, and not hinder our care. But this first uh, code that you talked about, this first concept, standard of care, this is really like the bedrock of the rest of the principles that we're going to be talking about. So it really does act as the pass or no pass line for whether we should use telehealth as like, does this impact our standard of care with our patients or our clients? And if it does in some way, and you can think of a few examples, I'm sure we could talk through a few examples of how that might happen. But if it can't meet the standard of care, if telehealth can't meet the standard of care, then we should not do telehealth, I think is the main takeaway you're saying here. 
Absolutely. And so I love that you've brought up some examples or talking about examples, because like, for example, if you are a primary care physician and you're trying to rule out a diagnosis or rule in a diagnosis for a patient, and part of the standard for diagnosing a patient with a certain condition is to get their blood levels and look at serum levels for something specific. Well, you can't really... uh, instead do a questionnaire or substitute a questionnaire in for looking at blood levels, that would be um, completely inappropriate. And you would no longer be meeting the standard of care at that point. Um, So again, that would be an example of a no-go. So it sounds like there's, I mean, just by common sense, there's, there are certain medical interventions that need to be done in person and do not fit for telehealth. Like you're saying, if you need to take blood from a patient, obviously that can't go over telehealth for obvious reasons. So that's a really interesting and important thing to consider. What are some other, do you might have another example or two of, of how standard of care might fit into this? Mm-hmm. So again, all of the same laws and standards are going to apply to in-person care. So if there's something that you would typically do for in-person care, um, that's what that's still going to be the standard for telehealth. Another example that I can think of is um, doing a prescription refill. So like, let's say you've prescribed a new medication to a patient um, and their self-report of side effects and symptoms is good enough for you to be clear on whether or not you can refill that prescription, then there's no need for them to come in and be seen by you for that visit. On the other hand, if this medication is something that you need to monitor their vitals for in order to make sure that they're not having any adverse side effects, you're going to want them to come in and that's going to be a no-go in terms of it doesn't meet the standard of care. Right. So once again, the standard of care acts as the threshold for whether or not we should use telehealth. Um, You know, a third example I'm thinking of is a patient in crises. Mental health or medical crises happen all the time, and they need very specific and immediate interventions if somebody's having, you know, a a heart attack or suicidal ideation. Then obviously, uh, if the provider's not in the room, they're not as able to help that, that patient. And so, I guess the solution, you know, there's some solutions that you could put in place, like assessing for the appropriate level of care for a patient and maybe pre-screening whether or not they could be a good candidate for telehealth based on their presentation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Okay. Interesting. So why don't we move on to the second point here, which is competence. And when we talk about competence, we're talking about the competence of the provider. Is that right? Right. Absolutely. So the provider has an ethical obligation to practice within their area of competence when using technology. Um, And for most disciplines, uh, in terms of all of the disciplines that we reviewed, it's actually considered a provider's ethical obligation to pursue professional development and to become proficient in using telehealth. So this kind of means a number of things, like having the practical knowledge of how to use a specific virtual platform to deliver medical care. Um, But it could also mean how to use a mobile application or an app before recommending it to a patient. Right. And obviously, the provider would need to be competent in how to use that app in order to recommend it to a patient. They're going to need to be able to explain it, maybe walk through the process with the patient. And if the provider doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't feel competent, it's probably not a good recommendation. Yeah, exactly. So and I I like to say that, you know, if we're not sure how to use an app or how to use a specific virtual platform, um, we probably shouldn't be using it with our patients because we really need to be able to troubleshoot these things with them. Absolutely. 
Yeah, especially if it's just you and your patient on a conference call, there's really nobody, no other resources there to help you. So what are some um, examples for this one? Um, I'm hoping maybe give some context to what this looks like when it comes to digital health. Sure. So it's not really, I also like to think of, you know, it's not really the patient's responsibility to know how to use equipment that's involved in their medical care. So for example, you wouldn't want to have a patient come into your office or you wouldn't expect a patient to come into your office and sit down and know how to use the blood pressure equipment to get their own blood pressure reading. Right. And when we use virtual technology while we're delivering care, we have to treat it the same way as part of the equipment that we're using. And so we need to be able to learn how to kind of manage the nuances and troubleshoot things with our patients. For example, if you want to share a document or display an image, because during your normal face-to-face -face interactions, you might kind of show them a handout or draw something on a whiteboard behind you, you should be able to use these virtual platforms and know how to use these virtual platforms to kind of do that same thing when you're working with patients. Yeah. And keeping in mind that not every patient out there, they're going to have people out there going to have varying levels of how comfortable they are using technology. And I love what you said about... We wouldn't expect a patient to use to know how to use the blood pressure machine. These are tools used by the provider. And so we should look at these these digital health technologies as the same concept, really. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, I've seen some providers might think that it's not really their responsibility to learn these things, right? That's something that's technology is outside of their wheelhouse. Um, unfortunately, if we plan to deliver our care through technology, that is now our responsibility and in a mandatory area of competence for us. So you need to be able to understand what the interface looks like. So if your patient is using their mobile phone, to, to receive healthcare from you, you need to know what virtual platform you're using, what it looks like on a mobile application or what it looks like on, on a mobile phone versus a laptop and how to kind of troubleshoot audio issues, video issues, connection issues. So I think this one's important because things that we haven't maybe typically considered competence on behalf of the provider now does fall under that realm. Yeah, it's it's just a sign of the times. And and really, providers have always used medical technologies, and this is just the latest iteration of that. So I kind of look at it that way. Um, and when you think about it that way, it, it becomes pretty obvious that it's the provider's responsibility to know what tools they're using with their patients. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I, I like what you said about the, you know, the sharing documents and things um, between, you know, for, so for example, if a provider needed to share a document with a patient, or maybe display an image or something to give them a piece of psychoeducation, maybe something they need to learn about, but they're unable to use the the app that they're trying to share with, uh, you know, that's a complete breakdown of care right there. Absolutely. And I, you know, I understand the difficulty of managing, you know, the electronic health system and new updates and email. And we have so much technology that we already have to be adept at using. So I understand that frustration. Um, but like you said, this has really been part of medical providers practice for a long time now. We have to be up to date with the new medical technology. And this is now part of it. Yeah, and it, and it would manifest in all kinds of ways. You know, I'm thinking about video conferencing um, if uh, and the need to sit and troubleshoot that ahead of time. So if a patient doesn't know how to use a video telehealth service and, and the provider also can't figure out how to use, you know, the microphone or the video and then 
or maybe later in the session, the call is disconnected because of internet issues. We all know how that's been going with COVID and being relying on telehealth. If the provider doesn't even know how to reestablish connection with the client, I mean, we you really do run into some really potential pitfalls there. Mm, absolutely. And then getting back to once again, we're not meeting standard of care in that case. Right. Yeah, totally. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Uh, can we move on to the third one? Because I think this one is equally important. We're talking about capacity and capability. And when we talk about capacity and capability, we're talking about the capacity and the capability of the patient to use telehealth. Is that right? Absolutely. That's right. Um, so in terms of we really want to understand what the patient's strengths and their needs are when it comes to um, the medical care that they're going to be receiving and their abilities with technology. But we also want to understand the risks and the challenges that using telehealth with those patients uh, or with a specific patient will um, offer. So I really like to think about this as like we need to consider the clinical and the demographic factors of the patient when we're providing telehealth. So clinical and, uh, and demographic factors, those would impact per- potentially how a patient, what their capability level is to use these technologies. Sure. So, for example, a geriatric patient or an older patient who maybe doesn't use technology as frequently as some as are as some of the younger generations, they may need more time at the beginning of an appointment to troubleshoot different issues. So, a uh, habit that I've gotten into is actually calling my patients a few minutes before their scheduled appointments, um, checking in with them. And what I've actually found is that most of them aren't even sure how to get into the appointment. I think that's gotten better the the more time has gone by with us using uh, telehealth. But especially initially, uh, you kind of have to walk them through from beginning to end how to get logged in or how to click on a um, a website that's been emailed to them. And so I like to call them a couple minutes in advance and really troubleshoot and get them set up so that when our appointment time starts, we can hit the ground running. Yeah, that makes sense. It's intuitive. That way we're not chewing into valuable appointment time that that the patient will need. And so something else we might want to keep in mind are things like the Wi-Fi and the bandwidth of a patient. So if you have um, a patient who has limited data because maybe they don't use their phone for social media and and searches and um you know, using their internet browser, but instead they really just use it for phone calls. And now you're doing a video conference with them. Mm-hmm. You might chew up their their data, and they might get all kinds of fees uh, in the mail when the bills come in, and they're not clear on how that even happened. And so this is all stuff we want to clarify with our patients beforehand. Um, maybe kind of getting a better sense of if they have the um, capabilities, right? So this is kind of what we mean when we say the capabilities of the patient is, do they have access to Wi-Fi? Are they on a Wi-Fi network? Sure. You know, and I think even you've said, we you see patients that will maybe take their, their appointment in their car just for privacy. And so if they're not connected to Wi-Fi, what are their capabilities? Um, so hopefully that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And, you know, there's a lot of issues. So what you're saying is really important because if a patient doesn't understand that for whatever reasons their their capacity for knowledge or the capability of knowledge for this these technologies, maybe they haven't thought about it. An older patient, like you're saying, generationally doesn't have the same experience with 
data streaming and doesn't think a lot about it and has never used video conferencing services before, they're not going to expect, you know, the the extra bill in the mail when their data cap hits because they've been using these uh, this video conferencing service. And sometimes the data stream will just shut off. It'll, you know, the service will just shut down the stream altogether. And then the patient is left wondering what happened. And you're left as the provider trying to reestablish connection with your patient. So there's there could be all kinds of problems, um, and I love that your your approach of solving it is to get ahead of it by weaving it into your intake process and just getting some clarification and whatever education needs to happen for the patient. What about medical factors or or you know important illnesses? How might that factor into a patient's capability if they're if they have medical or psychiatric factors that are inhibiting their capacity to use these technologies? That's a great question. So um, that's kind of what I mean when I say I think we need to consider like the demographic, but also the clinical factors. And so your example of a patient who's very sick or may have um, some kind of neuro functioning or, or misfunctioning that would prohibit them from being able to engage in telehealth, those would be patients that we might say don't have the capacity to do this, and we would prefer to be seeing them in person. Um, and sometimes this also means, you know, we need to have somebody else on the call with them, uh, maybe their caregiver or somebody who assists in their medical care. Generally, though, if they don't have the capacity to actually use, get on, log on, and have those conversations with us virtually, we're going to want to see them in person. Right. And so if you have a patient with medical or psychiatric factors, or both, you have that too, uh, a sick patient, then then you need to start really considering as, the, as a provider, is telehealth really the best way to go here? Mm -hmm. And in those cases, it sounds like it's probably not. But that's that's the provider's critical judgment that needs to be thought of ahead of time. Exactly. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. How about we move on to the next one here? This is um, the topic of confidentiality. This is something every provider understands and, and should understand and, and well knows and has thought about. Confidentiality and the idea of confidentiality with our patients is nothing new. Um, you know, we have HIPAA and we have these regulations in place that help us understand what confidentiality is. But the 21st century in telehealth has really added a, another layer of complexity to confidentiality. Absolutely. And I think that even though, like you said, confidentiality is familiar to providers, it can be unique in terms of the challenges that we face when providing telehealth services. So we still want to make sure that we're protecting patients' privacy and we're making sure that their information is secure. Um, one way to do that is to start every visit by confirming the patient's identity and communicating any limits to confidentiality with the patient at the beginning of the appointment. You also can't really control where the patient is during their appointment. So I've had patients who've had an appointment with me take a call in their bedroom, an office while they're at work where other people could hear, um, sitting in a parked car and all sorts of other random places. So I would say as providers, we want to think of the location of both ourselves and the patients as the exam rooms. So we wouldn't want to use our kitchen as an exam room because, for example, your spouse or your child might walk in at any time and that would be a breach of confidentiality. And we want to do and, and tell that same, communicate that same information to our patients. Um, so you might even say to your patient, treat this as a regular medical visit. Sure. 
anyone that you wouldn't want in the exam room with you shouldn't be able to hear what we're doing. Um, I think sometimes patients forget this because they're not used to taking their appointments on the phone or they're not used to doing virtual or telehealth. And so they might not realize they need to kind of separate themselves from other folks in the room. And so that can really limit the the quality of the information that you're getting from them if they have their spouse sitting in the same room, right? right. And they don't want to tell you exactly what's going on, um, especially for, for us as behavioral health providers, this becomes really key. Yeah, it, it really does add a layer of complexity to maintaining confidentiality. I think it's something we've taken for granted in the past as providers because we can simply have a, a patient come into our office and we know it's a secure environment. We know it's confidential and we don't have as much control over telehealth. And so it really does. I, I think what you're saying is it really requires that um, just like the last couple of points we've talked about, this requires some conversation with your patient ahead of time as the provider and helping them understand that. And, and I think the I think the piece about consider where you're having this meeting with your provider, consider that your exam room and make every precaution to make that private um, because it's going to it's going to mean the patient taking some responsibility on their side of the call to to ensure that too. And I'm thinking of things that you wouldn't even necessarily think about. Uh, so for example, a provider's conducting an online session and they are within, you know, audio and video range of somebody that somebody else that's in the house. And maybe they don't even think about it because it's not right in front of them. But you can see how these things might pop up unintentionally. Absolutely. Um, I feel like I keep saying absolutely over and over again, but you're you're hitting all these things <laughs> spot on. Yeah, we may not think about it. And, you know, some providers that I know, they'll actually even take their camera and sweep it around their office space so that they can show the patients that they're alone. I mean, especially if you're a patient and you see your provider on the other end and they're not sitting in an exam room, maybe they're sitting in an office at home or in a living room. Um, I would want to know that my provider were taking this patient or taking my confidentiality seriously. And so that's something that providers will do, um, especially if patients are maybe worried about confidentiality and privacy. So that's something that you can always you can always do. That's such a great idea because it's it's giving the patient a sense of security and safety. And all it costs the provider is just a simple second to sweep the camera around the room. You got to keep in mind from the patient's point of view, they're about to disclose medical information or maybe if they're in a, it's a therapy session with a mental health clinician, you know, they're, they're about to talk about extremely personal things. And that, that I can see how that would really serve to put somebody at ease. You actually just made me think of something else. And this is something that um, in particular behavioral health providers, but um, possibly other medical providers as well, we need to remind our patients, get ahead of it, that they can't talk about classified or higher than classified information during telehealth sessions. Um, sometimes patients will talk about information that is not unclassified, Um that can't be done over telehealth sessions, despite how secure or how um, confidential our connections may be. Well, and so in a case like that, I think what you're, I think the, you know, working ahead of time and, and trying to troubleshoot a lot of those things, and then just having a good, strong uh, consent form and a good consent session where the provider and the patient sit down and agree what the limits of confidentiality are while working online and to help propose these things, you know, I think talking about it here and now will help providers think about 
contingencies and scenarios that they might not have thought about before. Like, oh my gosh, what happens if somebody walks into the room unintentionally? What will I do? And so I think that, like you're saying, preventatively having a conversation with your patient saying, you know, we might not mean for it to happen, but it may be that somebody walks into your room unintentionally. And so what precautions can we take to make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it could be that you're having a medical visit with a patient and a nurse walks in or a patient accidentally walks into the room unintentionally. So that kind of stuff does happen even in hospital settings. Um, And so like you said, just kind of maybe even normalizing it, not necessarily in the sense that, you know, if you're sitting at home, your spouse is going to accidentally walk in, but just recognizing that even if you're, even if you're doing your telehealth sessions from your medical office, um, it could be that a nurse walks in in the same way that it might happen on, on accident during an exam being performed within the hospital. Um, So that kind of stuff does happen. Uh, We definitely want to make sure we are minimizing it and, and doing everything we can to keep those visits secure. Right. Makes total sense. Okay. Why don't we move on to, we're at the halfway point now. We're hitting number five here. And this one is uh, extremely important. We're going to talk about the topic of crisis and emergency. Again, crisis and emergency is probably not a new concept to most providers, especially if you're a mental health clinician or you work in an emergency room or whatever your background is. I'm sure most providers understand what it is to treat a patient who's in a crisis or an emergent situation. But just like the last concepts that we're talking about, there is a layer of complexity that is added on to this because of telehealth, because we're working remotely with our patients. And so I'm really curious to hear from you about what that layer looks like. What, 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 what does crisis and emergency look like ethically for telehealth and, and digital health? Yeah. And so like you said, this is not necessarily new because we've had patients who've had a crisis or an emergency um, that we've had to manage remotely. Uh, So there's there are three helpful ways that I would say we want to make sure to plan for an emergency, because for those of us who maybe haven't been using telehealth as our primary modality in treating patients, this might be something we're not really thinking about. So that first step is always confirming the patient's location at the beginning of a visit. Um, So when we were talking about confidentiality, we wanted to know where the patient was located when we were considering privacy factors. But in this situation, we want to know what the actual geographic location of the patient is. Um, So some patients may be close to a hospital, but they're using virtual services to help limit the spread of virus or infection. But other patients may actually be a few hours away from uh, the closest emergency department. Right. So the benefit of telehealth is that we can talk with patients that are a few hours away from care. And then the downside is that they're a few hours away from care. So there's a double-edged sword there. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, So once you've confirmed the patient's actual location, the next step is to get a good idea of the emergency contact information from the patient. So if something were to happen during that virtual visit, you want to know if your patient has a parent or a family member or somebody else close by that you can reach out to. So this is a last resort, obviously, but it's important for us when we're treating patients who might have some kind of a compromised medical status, right? The last thing that you would want to happen is have some something uh, really horrible happened to a patient during a visit and you're not sure what to do or who to call or who can be right there to help uh, to help that patient. 
and an intuitive question to ask for the provider is, is my, how likely is my patient giving their presentation, whatever that might look like, how likely are they to be in a crisis situation and think ahead of time about that kind of thing? Exactly. And this is something um, that, you know, we can plan more on like a, an SOP or like a standard operating procedure level in terms of there might be patients that we decide are too medically compromised to be treating virtually. But in terms of no matter what issue or, or diagnosis your patient has, this is something we still want to consider Um even if we think they're perfectly healthy, right? So it's, it's always good just to get their location, get an emergency contact information from the patient. And then also I would say the last important thing is to become familiar with the emergency services that are close to the patient. So if you're a behavioral health provider, this might look different than a primary care physician. You're going to want to make sure that you know who to contact in case something goes wrong during a virtual visit, whether that's like a behavioral health crisis, like somebody who's suicide or whether that's a medical emergency, we're going to want to make sure we know what the emergency services are in the area that's closest to our patient. Right. So those patients that are four hours away or in a rural area, it's not enough. To, so again, this is another layer where, whereas before we, we only maybe had to know the services in the area of the hospital or we're in the hospital or, or where the provider is if they're in an office situation. But what you're saying is this is another consideration we have to keep in mind. What is What are the services in the patient's area, which is different? And so how we need to find those so they can get to the patient faster. And I just wanted to button up another point you made about, because I think it was really well said. What I hear you saying is, yes, it's important to keep in mind how, how at risk is my patient and think about that stuff ahead of time. But what you pointed out just now is that Regardless of your patient's presentation, whether you assume them to be perfectly healthy, that does not necessarily mean that a crisis situation couldn't pop itself up for that. So I, I just wanted to go back to that and say that was really worth pointing out. Yeah. And I think that we're so, um, for some of us who, especially if you work in a hospital setting, we're comfortable knowing that the emergency department or a series of other providers are literally steps away from us. And so we may not be thinking about what would happen during the case of emergency. But when when that's not the case anymore, uh, these are things that we have to make sure we're planning for. And so that could be something unintentional happening during a visit. But there are other things we need to be thinking about too. Like, so you you might want to know if your patient is going on vacation to another state because let's say your patient lives in the same town as you. And so you know what all of the emergency services are when you're doing your normal medical visits with them. But then they go on vacation and they're out of state um, and they don't think to tell you that beforehand. So you want to make sure, again, to be confirming the location at every visit, because now if they're out of state, like, you know, they're in Idaho and you don't know what the emergency services are in Idaho, that's something we don't want to be frantically scrambling to look up when we're in the middle of a visit with them. Sure. So yet again, this comes down to communication between the patient and the provider and keeping caught up on what is going on in the, in the patient's life. And if they are having, uh, if they're going on vacation to have that conversation and the provider's going to need some information about, okay, well, where are you going? Uh, let's look for resources in your area, you know, just in case something like that happens. All right. So let's move on to the sixth theme here. And again, and really, uh, you know, I think, I think something we're realizing is none of these concepts are, are new to a provider's mind yep. per se. It's mm -hmm. just that there's a layer of 21st century technology that is now introduced. And so now we're going to talk about number six, which is consent. Consent 
obviously is something that has to happen before you can even treat a patient unless it's a emergent crisis situation. So how does consent look in the telehealth world? What does that even look like? Yeah. So, you know, once again, it looks a lot like it does in person, um, a lot like we're used to. But a thorough informed consent when we're doing telehealth also includes the potential benefits, risks, and the limitations of using technology to deliver care. Also, if you have any financial or other interests in the technology that are being used for the patient, you need to explain that to them up front. So for example, if you've created or developed an app or a mobile app that you'll then be recommending to them to use, that's something you want to make sure you're disclosing. Right. There's also a few other pieces that you're going to want to consider, like your credentials and your contact information. Um, so, you know, we might be in our office, we might have our licenses displayed. And so those things are apparent. Uh, and that may not be the case during a telehealth visit. So we want to make sure to talk about all that, especially during that very first contact with the patient, um, introducing who you are and what your credentials are to, to be providing the services that you're going to be delivering. Sure. So you might also talk to them about what they can expect your response time to be. So if they email you or call you or expect something from you, how long uh, they should expect that to take you. And I, I think it's important to note that some disciplines indicate that this consent be in writing. Um, signed consent really varies by state and local policy. It can vary by clinic, by department, um, even within a hospital, right? So you just want to make sure that you know whether or not you have to document that consent and get a signed consent form in the, in the patient record. Right. So I think what you're saying is it's really important for the provider to consider what discipline am I in and what does my ethical governing body say about this topic and then infusing that into what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. so do I need to have a signature or not? Mm -hmm. uh, what does that look like? What does a consent form look like? And no matter whether or not you have to have a documented signed consent, you should always document verbal consent. Um, and so again, when you're consenting these patients, you want to make sure you're talking to them about the potential downfalls of using technology when it comes to virtual care. So for example, if you say to your patient, we're going to be using telehealth for the next three sessions, but you don't tell them the potential limits of technology, potential downfalls of, you know, if the visual or the audio goes down, or maybe that they don't have the appropriate Wi-Fi or bandwidth or something like that, you're not giving them the opportunity to explore alternate methods of care delivery. And then that patient continues on in treatment with you uninformed of what options that are available to the patient. And maybe they would have preferred face-to-face, -face, or maybe they would have preferred something else. So it's really important to make sure this is part of your consent process, really talking about the potential benefits, but also the, the limitations of using technology. And all that serves to empower the patient to make a choice that's best for them. If they want to use a provider that's in person, then they get to know that by having this conversation with you about, hey, I, sometimes I might be meeting with you uh, via telecommunication. Uh, maybe all, not all patients are comfortable with that for some of the reasons that we've described. And so in those cases, by having this conversation up front and getting the patient's consent and, and informed consent, no less, and it really helps to clarify those kinds of things. What about a, a patient who asks a provider to treat a medical or psychological need that they're not uh, competent in? I'm thinking about a scenario where, a, if a think about a scenario where a patient asks the provider, um, I, I have a certain psych psychological or medical need that I need treated. So, for example, 
um, a patient comes to a mental health counselor looking for uh, trauma-informed care, maybe they have PTSD or a combat veteran or something, and the clinician is not competent to treat that. I think this is remedied with a the consent form, a well-written consent form that lays out the exact credentials and the scope of practice of the provider so that the client can know. And then even having a follow-up discussion uh, between the patient and the provider to clarify those kinds of things. Um, so all that to say that the consent form can be a, a, a good marker for a conversation about what are my credentials, what is my scope of practice, what am I qualified to help you with, and what am I not? Exactly. Exactly. I'm thinking of another example where a provider is, let's say, three sessions in the treating a patient, and then, uh-oh, they realize that they forgot to complete a consent form. And maybe they've been working telehealth and it's new to the provider. You know, telehealth is new. That's something that could easily happen nowadays. And they just didn't think of it ahead of time because it's not in their rhythm of things and they're still getting new to it. And I think in that case, you know, I would add it's an un it's unethical to treat a patient before they complete a consent form. And so a good standard of practice is to build in that habit of getting consent out of the way first, just like we would in person. But we, the provider may need to more deliberately think of that as a step that they need to weave into that initial intake session. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How about number seven? And this is a equally worthy topic to talk about. And we're talking about the seventh theme here, which is compliance. Yeah. So this is a really important takeaway. Um, the reality is that we want to make sure providers are practicing in compliance with whatever laws or regulations apply to them. Um, so the provider needs to keep in mind their current location, but also the location of the patient. So this doesn't necessarily apply to federal military health system employees, um, but documentation laws may vary by location or by state. So this is something you're going to want to check in with your local command about and make sure you're taking responsibility for. Again, you're going to want to check with your local command to make sure you're following clinical hospital guidance um, and staying informed and, and staying compliant with everything that you need to be compliant with. For sure. I, I think I know as a mental health clinician, I can speak to the different ways that states have their own licensing boards across from state to state. So if a therapist has been seeing a client for two months and then that client moves from Washington to, say, Ohio, the client has permanently changed their residency to Ohio, then because the therapist isn't licensed in Ohio, now suddenly there's an ethical dilemma here. Yeah. And in the military health system, what we see happening is when a patient moves, the medical care is actually transferred from one unit to a different unit. So for me, working in an embedded behavioral health clinic, um, what happens is when a patient leaves, uh, that patient's care will be transferred over to a new EBH or to a new unit. So we want to make sure that we're following all of the, the compliance. And that works for me as a provider, too. So the um, local policies and operating procedures are going to vary depending on what clinic I'm working in. And so that's something I want to make sure that I'm staying on top of when it comes to telehealth. Right, exactly. And so it, it, back to the psychotherapy piece, you know, it, it sounds like in either contingency, it's about transferring care to make sure that the therapist is practicing within the laws and ethics that are held at each state level. Each state has their own licensing body. Like I said, 
clinicians are only allowed to treat people who live in the state that they're licensed. So, so the clinician has the responsibility to transfer care to a clinician that's licensed in that state. So these are just nuances that need to be thought about um, now more than ever in a telehealth environment because it would be easy for a client or a patient to move and to continue care. So it would seem like a seamless transition, but if you did that, you'd be overlooking the laws and ethical standards there. So totally something to keep in mind. How about the eighth concept here? Again, nothing new, but looks different over telehealth and digital health. And number eight here is boundaries. Boundaries is something that we as providers spend a lot of time thinking about. We get a lot of training on, but we might not have as much training on boundaries as it relates to digital health. And so I'm curious about what what do you think boundaries looks like? Oh, I this is probably one of my um, favorite concepts that we're we're going to talk about because I think this is one that can be easily overlooked um, if you don't really think about it. And so, so I think the boundaries are a really important concept when it comes to engaging in telehealth. So most of the disciplines that Captain Crittenden and I reviewed stated that a professional relationship is established when you've used real-time audio or video with a patient. So essentially, that just means once you've had a virtual visit with a patient, you now have some level of professional responsibility for that patient. Um, and to like another reason is because boundaries are kind of implicit when it comes to face-to-face -face care settings. So usually what will happen is a patient will call a front desk to schedule an appointment. And then maybe someone at the front desk will check that patient in when they come in and they arrive for their, their appointment. And then a nurse might grab the patient and walk the patient back to an exam room. So the patient knows that the doctor is the primary person delivering treatment and that once the doctor has left the exam room, the visit is over and done with. So then that patient walks back to the front desk and schedules a follow-up visit with the administrative staff. So you kind of know, okay, so this is the person I go to when I need to schedule a visit. This is the person who's going to be taking my vitals. And this is the person that my actual visit is with. But when we're using telehealth, these boundaries are not nearly as apparent um, and they need to be discussed at the outset with patient. Each provider has to decide if they want to use their personal phone to call a patient or if they want to use a virtual platform and keep their phone number private. So we, we need to keep in mind that most patients recognize when they're doing face-to-face -face care that they wouldn't call their doctor anytime they wanted to. But if you're doing telehealth and that's how you're now delivering care to them, they may not fully understand that their visit is still within the confines of that appointment time, or they may not know exactly who to call to set up a follow-up visit or who's doing what or whether they can email you questions or whether they can text you stuff. So these are things we need to make sure we are very explicit about and very clear about with our patients at the outset. And, you know, it, just like you said, I think, I think boundaries is, is probably one of the blurriest concepts that we're talking about here as far as how it translates to your interaction with your provider-patient relationship. I'm thinking of several examples uh, for, let's say, and I know clinicians that this has happened to, uh, but let's say after the first few sessions with your client, they start texting or calling you, assuming that you can just have a running text message conversation with them. But that opens up... Uh, not only boundary issues, but confidentiality issues. Mm, absolutely, it does. You definitely don't want your patient to be texting you confidential private information. Um, so you want to make sure to be very explicit. Look, if, if you're one of those providers who decides to give your patient your phone number, 
that's fine. But make sure you let your patient know, you know, don't text me this information or that information. Like only text me if you can't make it to an appointment or only text me if you if if something specific happens. Right. So we don't we want to take all of that guesswork out of it for the patient. We want them to know, great, okay, if you had an issue with your medication, this is the number that you call. If you need to schedule a follow-up, this is the number that you call. Um, And if you have side effects, right, you need to schedule a follow-up rather than them thinking, oh, okay, I'm having side effects this medication. I better call that number that my doctor called me on, or I better text them. And especially in the military health system, um, patients can look up provider email addresses quite easily, right? So this is why prevention is so important because we don't want to come into work one day and see emails um, from a patient with, you know, that something significant has happened. And now we're trying to figure out how to get them scheduled and booked. And we're kind of working backwards in that situation. We want to make sure we get ahead of it. And so they know exactly who to call and who to contact. And I think that, you know, and I don't want to insult anyone by saying that like this isn't understandable or it's not intuitive, but it just does get gray and foggy, um, especially from a patient perspective, if these things aren't explicit. Yeah, it does. You know, I think as the providers, we're used to working in this world and we're used to thinking about boundaries and confidentiality, but a a patient doesn't necessarily know those things. They may not have been to a doctor or a therapist before, and we can't make assumptions on their behalf that they know those things. It really falls back on us to explain that. And boundaries are best established early on, right? Rather than that's something I've I've always teach my students is, you know, boundaries are something that are best established early on. Better to do that up front than to have to make boundary corrections once that relationship is already established. You run the risk of embarrassing your your patient or or damaging the the relationship in some way. You know, I'm thinking from a therapist point of view, which is kind of the point of view I can talk from, if you know, there's schedule there are services out there that will help the clinician, the mental health clinician and the client or the patient schedule appointments. And that works just fine unless the client or the patient is in some sort of mental health crisis. And then scheduling, you know, obviously the, the, that's an emergent situation that needs to be taken care of immediately. Um, and so what happens then, you know, rather than waiting until the next session to talk about the issue, the provider needs to have a way to immediately get in touch with the, with the client. Right. So you definitely want to make sure that you're clarifying if your patient is emailing you that it's only to schedule appointments, for example. Um, you don't want them to be in a crisis and emailing you. Um, you want to make sure that they have all of that crisis emergency contact information and um and, and again, that stuff's not coming over during email because if your patient has a crisis on a Friday and you don't check your email until a Monday, um, that's a huge issue because that bomb of an email is just sitting in your inbox unread um, because you didn't clarify up front that that would be inappropriate. You know, again, boundary crossings happen even in, in face-to-face care. You know, you're still going to have those patients who will email you this information, but we want to make sure that it doesn't become a pattern. And the best way to do that is to prevent it. Absolutely. 
All right, let's move on to number nine here. And I think a lot of the concepts that we've that we have talked about ethical standards around standard of care, confidentiality, boundaries. These are conversations we could have talked about these things twenty years ago, and they would have been relevant. Except we have to throw on this layer of mm-hmm. digital health, and how does that apply, and how does that change things? But number nine is a bit different, in my opinion, because it is something that is directly related to the the telehealth world and the, and the digital health world. And that is something we all know and love, which is technology failure, <laughs> uh, which happens all the time. We get, we get calls dropped or a bad internet connection or, um, you know, all, a whole menagerie of things can happen around technology failure. So I'm curious about what are, you know, what are some ethical considerations around that? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so you're right. We don't really think about this when we're providing face-to-face care in some ways. Like, we don't think about, like, you know, what if the patient's call suddenly drops? You know, that's not something we're thinking about in face-to-face care. But we do have experience with this when it comes to face-to-face care because we have backup plans set up in case our electronic health record, like documentation system goes down or we can't administer measures that we typically do on a tablet of some sort. So we have paper measures. So it's it's something we're kind of already doing, but it is, is very specific to telehealth care um, in terms of thinking about it, preparing for it, and being ethical for it. So we recommend that you plan for technology to fail during your patient care. Not, you know, keep it in the back of your mind, but you plan for it in advance. And the first step in doing that is to develop your own definition of what it means for um, technology to fail. So how do you define technology failure? You're also going to want to think about how much time you'll allot to troubleshooting technology before you change courses. And in the Army, we use this acronym called PACE, and that stands for your primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency plan. Essentially, what are your plans A, B, C, and D? So, for example, if your plan A, um, your, your, your primary plan is to deliver your care through a virtual platform so you can see your patient and you can hear your patient, but the, the connection isn't working, what's your backup plan? Do you cancel the appointment or do you decide to switch to a telephone visit? Um, so we want to make sure that you're planning for all of this in advance. Right. So I'm thinking of an example where a provider begins an appointment with a patient and then the audio is not matching up to the visual <laughs> and, or the call is dropped or something's going on. And so rather than trying to spend that whole hour and chewing up the whole session, trying to troubleshoot that, maybe the provider has a policy around that. And this is probably the kind of thing that we get better with experience too. Once the provider has been through various technical difficulties, they're going to be better and better at troubleshooting and planning ahead for those things. Yeah. So a good rule of thumb might be to try connecting twice. And if that doesn't work, then you switch to phone or you might just decide I'm going to troubleshoot this for three minutes and then I'm going to just try using a phone call. And at that point, if we're still having trouble with a phone call or if I can't provide the care that I need to, like I'm doing a medical visit and I need to actually see something on the patient, um, then I have to reschedule. And, And again, just like all of the other recommendations we've made, this is something we want to keep in mind preventatively. We're going to talk about this at the beginning of a call with a patient. Um, just say, hey, technology fails sometimes. This is what we're going to do if it does. And, you know, I think I think another point is technology failure does not always 
exist just between, you know, on the patient's end or the provider's end. Sometimes there's third parties involved, uh, you know, if whatever services you might be using for the patient to upload documents or send data, you know, what happens if that website is down or the app is crashed, uh, you know, then what? Exactly. And so we want to make sure that we have, like I said, a pace plan. So what is going to be our primary and our secondary options if we typically send information through this one specific modality, but that's down, what's going to be our backup? So this is something that we want to keep in mind and we want to make sure we are planning for in advance. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, so let's move on to our 10th and final key concept here, not the least important, just the last, uh, which is cultural awareness. Obviously, there's cultural factors that are going to play into our clients, like we had said before, their capacity and their ability to engage in these digital technologies and telehealth. And so what does cultural awareness even look like in a digital medium? Yeah, and just like you said, cultural awareness is something that is really fundamental to a lot of the different concepts that we've already talked about. So as a provider, you want to keep culture, cultural differences in mind when it comes to these guidelines or when it comes to delivering um, and using digital health with patients. So we might work with patients of different ages, religions, and races. Um, and even though these factors don't always interfere with technology or affect technology, they absolutely can. And so I, I really think the biggest thing we need to keep in mind is that we want to make sure that we aren't enhancing disparities in access to care, meaning we don't want to only be offering telehealth services to individuals who can afford the technology, who have some experience with technology, and who speak English, right? Um, we want to make sure that if there are obstacles to getting care because of a, a, a cultural piece, that we're doing whatever we can to help eliminate that or overcome those barriers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an extremely important point and to try to put ourselves into the perspective and have some empathy for the patient and where they're coming from, from their own cultural vantage. You would assume that this would play in a number of different ways because there's many diverse cultures out there and and, and different factors of those play in. And, and it may be that if there is a problem with technology, maybe the patient's more likely to assume that it's their fault or that um, something isn't working. And, and a lot of that can be troubleshot ahead of time with the provider just having a conversation and trying to meet the patient where they're at. Mm -hmm. Actually, and, and you hit that point um, briefly, but there's actually research that shows, especially older patients who don't have as much familiarity with technology, when they experience problems with technology, they're more likely to assume that it's their fault rather than to assume that something's not working. Um, so we want to make sure we're keeping that in mind as we're working with different cultural differences. Can you think of some other cultural considerations that might play in this that we're talking about here? Yeah. So um, some things that come to mind for me are uh, potentially a religious or cultural background where using technology is something that's adverse to them. So, for example, if you're part of a religious group that doesn't have technology easily accessible and you typically get your medical care in person, but hospitals are shut down and they're not seeing patients face to face, um, now that patient suddenly doesn't have the same access to technology. 
or even a patient who can't afford technology. Um, so somebody who may not, you know, we kind of assume that everyone has a smartphone these days. And I do think that by and large, that's true. But folks who can't afford that now, you know, really can't get care, especially if they don't have the option of face-to-face appointments. Right. And and again, a lot of those things can be mitigated up front and just by having some cultural awareness and sensitivity to where's the patient coming from? What are their considerations that we need to talk about here? Like you said, if they're culturally adverse to technology or there's some other limitation there, like a financial limitation, you know, equipment is expensive and it's internet and it's data and it's a computer and it's a webcam and streaming services and these things add up and these are extra costs that not everybody can take on. And so, you know, in this telehealth medium with COVID and these other considerations where we're sort we're all kind of forced to work online, so are these patients. Yeah, so I would say, you know, we want to make sure that we're looking into adaptive technology. So for maybe folks who don't speak English, is there some way that we can still deliver care to them um, if English is the only language that we speak? Or for folks who can't afford certain types of technology, is there a way that we can, you know, continue to offer either face-to-face visits or can we have some kind of like a borrowing system where we, you know, maybe have a tablet or something that's accessible or maybe even like a remote satellite office where they can come in. And I know the VA does stuff like this, right? They have a remote location where patients can come in and do their visits virtually, especially if those patients don't have access Um, to the same technology. Okay, Captain Walter, this has been an extraordinarily important uh, session and discussion that you and I have had. We've talked through key, 10 key digital health best practices for digital health technology from standard. And I just want to review them just real quick as a recap. We have standard of care, the competence of the provider, the capacity and the capability of the patient, Confidentiality, what does that look like over telehealth? Crisis and emergency, consent, the compliance factor, boundaries, technology technology failure, and cultural awareness. I think your contributions to this discussion have been really valuable in helping people understand how these 10 key factors will fit into their work and help them to give better care to their patients. So I just want to thank you for your time and for your wisdom and expertise. uh, And thank you for coming on and having this conversation with us, Captain Walter. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me to have this conversation. It's been a real pleasure. There is now an opportunity for you to earn one continuing education credit for physicians, psychologists, nurses, social workers, and physicians' assistants. All you have to do is listen to this ethics podcast. If you're hearing this, you most likely just listen to it. Then go to the DHA Continuing Education Program office to sign in, register for the activity, and take a brief quiz. The registration is at caution-www.dhaj7-cepo.com. That's dhaj7-cepo.com. We've got the link to the overall CEPO website and to this activity specifically. Please let us know if you have any questions. Learn more about our programs at the Military Health System at health.mil or on social media at Military Health.